Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, it's Candice and Kayla, and we are Directionally Challenged. Oh, yeah. We thought we'd have it all figured out by the time we're in our 30s. But surprise, we don't. Nope, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, we really don't. But um, that's why we have this podcast. And that's why we're all together here today to grow and learn. We have a wonderful guest that we've been excited to have join us today. Uh, For weeks, we've been anticipating this interview. We are going to sit down with a gentleman by the name of Richie Reseda. I first heard about Richie from watching uh, Black Lives Matter LA has a virtual town hall every Thursday. I recommend them. It's on their Facebook page. Uh, If you look at the LA chapter for Black Lives Matter, they have all of the town halls that they've done throughout 2020. It's uh, they're, they're called This Is Not a Drill. And so Richie was specifically in uh, part 13. And the episode is called Hashtag Defund the Police and Police Abolition. He's also joined by Haywan Asfa, Pete White of LA Can. And the virtual town halls are hosted by Melina Abdullah, who is one of the founders of the LA chapter of Black Lives Matter. 
And Richie's story was incredible. Um, I just really appreciated how he explained, you know, what it me what police abolition meant. And I we are just so excited that he's going to be our guest today. Richie Reseda is the formerly incarcerated feminist man who teaches feminism to men behind bars. He co-founded Initiate Justice in 2016 while serving 10 years in California State Prison. While incarcerated, he founded Success Stories, a program that helps young men in prison challenge patriarchy to better achieve their goals, which was also the subject of CNN's documentary titled The Feminist on Cell Block Y. He holds a bachelor's degree in business management from Adams State University, and he raps and produces music through his social impact record label Question Culture. So without further ado, here is our compelling conversation with Richie Reseda. And we're here with Richie Reseda. Richie, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing in 2020 right now? How are you handling quarantine? Are you staying creative? Yeah, 2020 um, has been really difficult um, and also really uh, liberatory and amazing. Um to just have so many changes in the world happen. I don't know. There, there's no like single way. I've been both really good and have had like real challenges as I, I feel like most people have, um, you know, except for the few people who made, made billions of dollars off of this quarantine. It's yeah. been difficult. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what I feel like every conversation for a while, I think I've even said it on this podcast, but usually you ask someone like, how are you? And they're like, I'm good. But now the new I'm good is I'm okay. Like I'm okay. <laughs> Today I'm okay. Um, and so we can definitely resonate with that. Did you grow up in California? Yeah. Yeah. I'm from Los Angeles, California, specifically uh, the San Fernando Valley until I was like 16 and then everywhere in LA. Yeah. Well, you've got a fellow California girl in Kayla. Right. I was just going to say, so I'm from Long Beach, born and raised. Oh, and awesome. it's so rare to find someone who's actually from here. <laughs> and so when I was reading and you were talking about growing up in the San Fernando Valley, I was like, oh, OK, here we go. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. And growing up in California is so lovely and great. But then it's also, you know, not necessarily always what everyone thinks it is. And I know that you're Childhood is something that has greatly affected and impacted um, who you are today. And I really want our listeners to hear um, some of your story because I'm, I know we have a lot of locals that listen. And um, can you take us there from the beginning? I really appreciate you saying that, Kayla, because California, I think California is a perfect example of what neoliberalism is. California is very like surface level, quote unquote, liberal. Um, California loves to put on, especially being from Long Beach, you know this probably better than everyone. California loves to put on a good corporate sponsored pride. California loves to talk about glass ceilings and supporting women. Um, but California is also extremely uh, invested in the punishment state. Um, California has one of the highest per capita incarceration rates in the world. Um, Los Angeles County has the biggest jail system in the world. So while we also have Hollywood here in LA, we also have um, tens of thousands of unhoused people and tens of thousands of incarcerated people. And a lot of people who were really uh, boxed out of uh, that kind of California dream that people think of when they think of Southern California. Right. One part of California gets so much of the focus. 
And mm-hmm. so that's part of why we want to have this conversation with you today is make sure people know that there is a whole other side to now I'm sure not just California. We obviously know more about our own story yeah. because we're from here. Um, but one of the things I love so much about you that I read is that you admit to loving America's Next Top Model and watching it growing up. And then you realize that, oh, wait, is this not necessarily like, quote unquote, what I'm supposed to be doing or who I'm supposed to be? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I grew up loving America's Next Top Model. I love Spice Girls. I love musical theater. I love Rent. Um, and, you know, as a young male identified kid, I, I learned very quickly that that's not the way that I was, quote unquote, supposed to be. And that to grow up to be a quote unquote real man, I had to be um, emotionless and violent and um, quote unquote, have women um, and have money. And, you know, from just the, I, I started middle school because when my birthday is, I started when I was 10. From like that September to that winter break, my entire wardrobe changed my whole get down changed. my haircut changed my little target shirts with the little gecko on them like were like replaced by like really big t-shirts and just like me really uh trying to mimic what the media and what older kids in my neighborhood um showed a quote-unquote uh real man um was supposed to be that that's who i tried to be and i started doing drugs selling drugs hanging out with gang members um and at the same time you know, before I, I ever like did anything harmful or illegal to anyone else, I was being criminalized as well. Um, LA County, like many places um, in the country, was heavily investing in the police, specifically in schools. Um, we had what they called zero tolerance policy and, and this idea of if you highly criminalize the smallest things, then kids won't grow up to be quote unquote criminals. So I was you know, getting kicked out of class for talking when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. I was first arrested and I was 11 years old for playing too rough on the schoolyard. And then again at 13 for leaving school early. And then again at 13 for quote unquote vandalizing. And I was actually like scraping the dirt off my desk. And it kind of just went from there, like choke slammed by the Los Angeles School Police Department for talking during an assembly. Which um, these are all things that every kid has done. This is yeah. what's so absurd about it. It's like you ask anyone and of course everyone's played a little rough on the playground or, you know, written on their desk at school. That's like a typical thing. And you were arrested. Yeah. So, well, I was that's detained. Crazy. But deta- but so, that's still detained. It wasn't like, let's go have a talk with the guidance counselor. Hey, let's, let's talk this out. Or maybe some like come and clean. There was no like positive reinforcement it was just punishment 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 yeah yeah we didn't have guidance counselors i didn't even i only saw them on tv <laughs> like we had cops <laughs> which i believe even your uh high school principal asked you to drop out right is that yeah true? um so i started getting when i was 14 i was like failing out of school and my mentors uh mark anthony johnson and patrice colors um started training us to be community organizers and really just supported me um, and my, I, I turned everything around just within the, from when I was 14 to when I was 16, I went from failing out of school to taking college classes, getting all A's and B's, getting all of my, um, credits to graduate. And I was able to graduate in the 11th grade. I had my credits ready and, but you had to get the principal's 
um, permission. So I set up a meeting with the principal and I met with him and, and asked if I could graduate with the seniors. And he said, if you don't want to go to school, you should just drop out. Um, and that's what I did. That's such a sad story. That's such a, that makes me so angry to hear that. Do you mind wow. if I ask if you at that point at home, did you feel like you had support or were there any other friends that you felt like you could talk to about goals or or wanting to stay in school or wanting to pursue? I know you were heavily in the arts. You're a great musician and writer. Like, were, was there anyone around you in which you had that support system to direct you besides, you know, Patrice and any of your mentors at that time? Well, I think I, I appreciate I appreciate that question, Candice, because I've I think oftentimes people imagine when they hear stories about kids dropping out, they assumed I dropped out because I was doing bad in school, which was not the case, right? Or when we hear about people who went to prison or who are incarcerated, like I was, uh, they assume that we didn't have fathers or or whatever. But that, that that was also not the case. I was I was raised in the home with my father. Anyway, I say all of that to say, um, patriarchy is very limiting. And my relationship with my father, though he was present um, physically and worked very, very hard to support our family, he, he was only as a present emotionally as patriarchy really teaches men to be. So my support, obviously my dad didn't want me to drop out, um, but there was no, I guess what I'm saying is there was no space for emotional conversation. And me wanting to be an artist and musician was not necessarily seen as a legitimate path, not only by my principal, but but by my dad as well. He supported me. He, he loved music, but the idea that you're going to graduate a year early and not go to college and just make music wasn't something he supported. We, there was just very standard, stagnant ways that we could uh, connect and coexist because of the ways that we were both limited uh, by patriarchy. So to that, with all that said, I would say, no, I didn't have um, support outside of Mark Anthony and Patrice and my friends in in the movement and they obviously recommended that I didn't drop out either but they also understood that you know I was going to a school where I was being criminalized every day and yeah. I was over it so I, I, I wasn't willing to listen unfortunately um, and I did drop out which resulted me getting kicked out of my house and living in the streets from when I was 16 until I went to prison at 19. And so you at age 16 are on the streets at, that's at such a <laughs> pivotal part in anyone's life being 16 is such a difficult age as it is and now your entire reality has changed and of course yeah. you end up resulting in trying to fend for yourself right and so this path that you go down and you how what is that can you can you take us there for a minute and just just explain to us what that is like mentally to have such a significant change at such a young age you know, if you were to ask me at 16, I would have said it was great because I felt like I was free. Um, I didn't have to deal with school and I didn't have to deal with my parents. But when I, but in reality, I was not great. I was a person who was in having grave mental and emotional health problems. I was addicted to drugs. Um, again, because of the ways that I believe obviously because of my choices i'm not trying to erase that but i'm trying to give context like talking about a 16 year old child you know um i was raised not to express emotions and for me uh getting high was a way of dealing with everything that was going on because i couldn't talk about it so um yeah it was it was it's really just sad and difficult and led me to be very resentful 
of everybody, um, which I then used to justify doing things like robbing stores because I, you know, I don't know if we can cuss on here, but like my mantra yeah. at 16, <laughs> y'all are always excited. You're like, hell yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, but like sad to say, like my mantra at 16 was fuck everybody. Like I would say that all the time. I would walk through grocery stores and look at regular working people and hate them because I was like, y'all don't fuck with me. So mm-hmm. I just felt like I was the enemy of everybody. I, I had grown up getting kicked out of classrooms and arrested for bullshit. And everybody would applaud those systems that I knew were after me. And at some level, I just knew that the world wasn't for me or our little society here wasn't for me. So I was against everybody. And again, that's not to justify the choices that I made to rob those stores when I was 19, which were obviously very traumatizing for the people in the stores and were just bad and harmful choices. But I do think it's important to give that context. Like when we, what we invest in is telling our kids what we care about. And when we invest in punishment and control, we're, that's what we were telling our children. Um, And as a 16 year old kid on the street, I saw myself as, you know, me against everybody. And I, and I acted like it much to my detriment and the people around me. And I think that's what's missing so much, specifically in the subject of incarceration for anyone that, you know, the context, essentially, you know, it's easy to put a blanket statement and missing just like the context and the stories and the people and, you know, all the life that led up to choices. And that shouldn't be null and void. That should be considered 100%. I mean, you were so young, too, especially when, you know, you were making these choices that led to potentially a life sentence. Um, if you're comfortable, do you mind sharing with us uh, what the choices that brought you to, I'm sorry if I'm saying, but essentially what sent you to prison? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm comfortable. Um, so I finally got my own, after like living from like couch to couch, every once in a while having to sleep in some cars, I, um, I finally got my own place um, and a car and paid off my ticket so I could like legally drive. And I was working at a preschool actually um, that was state and county funded. It was a public preschool. And um, the state funding for preschools got slashed. Uh, prison, Prison funding went up that same year, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, I mean, prison funding has went up every year for like the past 40 years. But anyway, the point I'm making is that they were cutting preschools to pay for prisons. Um, and one day I show up to work and my classroom was closed and I was a month and a half into paying rent for the first time in my life. And, um, I didn't want to go back to sleeping in cars. And there is a part of me that felt very entitled and justified. Like I quote unquote, tried to do it right. Um, Mm-hmm. So once that happened, I was like, I felt at the time that I had to go back to doing what I had learned to do in the streets, um, which was get money illegally at the expense of other people. And uh, that's what I decided to do. So I robbed uh, three stores, actually. Um, and the on the, the final robbery... Um, I didn't physically rob the store, not to minimize my responsibility, but I like walked in, kind of like seen what was going on, bought some candy and walked out. Um, And, you know, uh, the store was robbed, like I I knew it would be. And then um, 
a helicopter started following us. I, my friends got nervous. So I jumped, I told him, give me the money. I jumped out. I started walking. A car pulled up um, a black 2012 Mustang. This is in 2011. And these two people in regular clothes, but bulletproof vests jumped out with long guns. I don't know what they were, rifles or shotguns or something. Um, and started screaming at me to put my hands up or whatever. And, you know, I thought, I didn't even know they were cops. I thought they were security guards and I was pretty arrogant. So I thought I could talk my way out of it, but I put my hands up and they ran up and they hit me with the gun and they beat me into a concussion. And, uh, I got arrested. Obviously I, I imagined I was going to be incarcerated for some time. Um, my initial, when you get arrested, they give you a paper for what you're arrested for. It said three robberies. I was like, well, I did three robberies, so that makes sense. But when I got to court, um, my lawyer comes in, or a lawyer comes in, calling my last name. I walk up, and he says, so just go in there. It's your arraignment. Just plead not guilty, and then we'll worry about getting these life sentences off of you. And I was like, life sentences? Like, what are you talking about? You must have the wrong person. He was like, no, no, it's it's you. Uh, And you're looking at seven robberies, two kidnappings, and assault with a deadly weapon. Um, Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they had essentially charged every person who was in the store as a separate robbery. Like even if the person was in the bathroom or like wasn't necessarily being robbed, every person in the store was a robbery. Um, and then for the assault deadly weapon, I, I, they pretty much just made it up. But at that point, why not? Because the the way that the, the criminal legal system works is district attorneys charge you with everything they can think of so that you have a very high maximum so that you're afraid to go to trial so that you will then plead out to whatever they call them deals, but whatever they, they tell you a a plea bargain. So by having me have a maximum of 150 years to double life, they were, they were using that to then get me to plead out to some things I did and some things that I didn't do. Like, uh, they, they, they charged me with seven armed robberies. Um, and then they charged me with, two gun enhancements, but I didn't have a gun. I, I walked into a store, bought some candy and walked out again, not uh, pretending like I didn't know the store wasn't going to get robbed. And I wasn't right. going to benefit from that. I'm still responsible for what happened um, and the, and the results, the real human results of those choices. But just factually speaking, I did not have a gun, but they were able to get me to plead out to having a gun because my fear is if I go to trial, like as a 19 year old, you're like, you're okay. 19. Yeah. yeah. They're like, you can go to trial and possibly only to go to prison for the things you actually did, which for me would be like two years of, of between two and six years of prison time. Or you can lose and you can get 150 years and you can die. You can live the rest of your life and die in prison. So what are you going to do? So I ended up taking 10 years and two strikes. Yeah. So you're in prison now um, and you are just kind of like you're so unique and I I know special so overused but I want to use that word for you because you take this opportunity and you develop success stories which is such an incredible organization can you tell our listeners about it yeah I'd love to um but I don't as much as I appreciate that Kayla I don't know I I wouldn't say that I'm that unique I I had unique a unique experience in that I was trained as a feminist organizer when I was 14. So starting a feminist organization was unique, but people in prison, um, I believe it's 
Thurgood Marshall, who has a quote that says, when they lock the prison gate behind you, you don't stop being a person with hopes and dreams. Like, so people in prison are amazing, just like people outside of prison. And I knew people in prison, people who mentored me in prison, who had, who got two master's degrees in prison and who started executive leadership training programs in prisons where literally whole executive C-suites from colleges and companies were coming in and being trained by some of my friends in prison. Like I've just seen amazing things from people in prison. So from that perspective, I, I would say I'm not unique, but given that, you know, Mark Anthony was taking me to feminist men's groups when I was 14 and I was reading bell hooks at 14 and that was the freest I ever felt being around feminist men where you can hug and be a person. Um, and I wanted that freedom again. So I got back into my feminist study and I wanted to offer that same freedom to others. So we started success stories, which is a program that, uh, offers feminist workshops for people who've caused harm as a way of transforming our behavior. Now, when you first started this program, uh, was that an easy sell? <laughs> was that an easy like, <laughs> hey, come to this new program I just started. <laughs> We're going to read some bell hooks and, you know, rock <laughs> on with some feminist literature and, you know, talk about patriarchy. <laughs> was no. that an easy transition? <laughs> it's still not an easy sell. Um, yeah. It went exactly like you think it went. Like, <laughs> like the first time I tried it, I got like literally laughed out of the room. Um, and it just took us a minute to understand how to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And what we learned is that it wasn't about teaching uh, feminism um, or teaching people about their patriarchy. It was about coming clean about our own patriarchy and modeling that vulnerability actually invites other people to do so. So it was about like healing through our harmful beliefs together as opposed to like political education. And it took us a few years to figure that out. But once we did, uh, we became pretty successful at being able to transform people's beliefs. Can you expand on that a little bit for any women who have sons who are listening right now? Some of those uh, beliefs and some of those things that you do teach in, in success stories? Yeah, um, I think it's important to just note, um, ooh, women with sons are, are in a tough spot <laughs> because it's really not, I don't, I, I don't like to advocate for uh, cis women, trans women, non-binary people, people who are oppressed by patriarchy to like take on the burden of now teaching men about patriarchy. But when it's your son, it's like, I can, I mean... I can imagine you feel like you kind of have to, and, and that makes sense. Um, but with, with acknowledging that, I think it's important to note that men are taught that patriarchy is what gives us value, like as people. Um, like if we're not winning in the patriarchal game of having money, of quote unquote happy women, of being a tough guy, right? Then we are not valuable human beings. We are not worthwhile people. Men are also taught that patriarchy is what keeps us alive and keeps us safe, that the world is a dangerous place of people trying to dominate you, and the only way you can not be dominated and destroyed is if you dominate others, right? So th that's the, the, the place people are coming from when they're acting out patriarchally. They're coming from a place of fear and insecurity. And what we do in success stories is we, we move in a way that acknowledges that, that I'm actually talking to someone who's scared. So it might show as like toughness and um, aggression towards me, but the more aggressive they are, actually the more insecure and scared they are. And, and when I'm relating to them like that, I can talk to them in such a way that allows them to kind of 
wean off of the drug of patriarchy, uh, which is which is not keeping them safe. It's actually putting them in more danger and and show them that. And that has proven to be the most successful way we've been able to have the conversation, that heart space. Wow. Just the image of all of these quote unquote tough men having conversations like that is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, okay. So you initially go and you start success stories and then you are out of prison and it continues to run, correct? Mm-hmm. So do you go back and visit and continue to talk to them and have these conversations or do people that are within the system take them over for you? Or what does that look like? So, yeah, so I got out in 2018. um, And since then, we've expanded success stories into three more prisons. We just got approved to go into four more prisons with four yards each, so potentially 16 more programs. Um, We're in a county jail. We're in a bunch of reentry facilities as well, um, some like youth organizations all around the country. Um, and it's, I've, I have been able to go back and, and like personally do it. I've done it um, at the prison where I started Success Stories in Solidarity, California. I've done it at the Metro Jail in Washington, DC. Um, but our model is as our facilitators are getting out of prison, we are hiring them and then they are going in and delivering programs. So we've been able to hire full-time three of our facilitators uh, who've gotten out and are now our coaches. And then we have two folks who are currently incarcerated who we have hired to run entire, like the, the programs at entire prisons and jails as well. Wow. That's amazing. What are some of the more impactful moments that you have experienced while running success stories? Or is there like a linear theme that you've seen kind of running through a lot of the um, vulnerable moments that these men have shared together. Yeah. Um, I'll think of, uh, of just a few that are, that are recent. Uh, I remember actually this is in the older ones. There is one of our facilitators, um, good friend of mine, older dude. He was in his forties, uh, grew up gang member from LA. Um, and we were having a conversation about patriarchy and he was talking about, well, you're just, you're, you're, you're telling us um, to just tell these dudes to, to be victims. And I said, um, you're being a victim right now in, in that you're, you're, you're letting like patriarchy dictate your life is what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. Um, But the word victim has like a, it's kind of like a sharp tooth, word in prison because of you know the victim is the person who gets rolled off on the gurney so to call someone a victim especially to an older dude at the time he had been in prison like 20 years and has seen a lot of violence in prison he took it as i was saying like i was relating him to that person the person who gets rolled off in the gurney the person who's been assaulted um and he like got aggressive with me like was in my face and like like posturing as if he was gonna hit me and all the facilitators are sitting there like what do we do um and I told him, I said, what are you, you, you going to hit me, bro? You going to punch me in the face? Like, if you do, it's not going to change how you feel right now. But you can change how you feel right now by letting go of this idea that you have to be a certain way or that any of these men have to be a certain way. And um, he calmed down. And he, he didn't punch me in the face. And... Uh, 
anyway, years passed. He, and he was, he remained kind of like a, a challenging figure in success stories. Years passed. I get out of prison. He called me last year and he brought this story back up. And he was like, I just want to tell you that you changed my life. And, and I would say I didn't change his life. The, the, you know, the good training I was given and, and was able to, to pass forth is what helped him change his own life. But that still meant something to me when he was like, I just want to tell you, like, I get it now. I get what I get what Bell Hooks is talking about. I get the feminist thing. I've been trying to employ it in my life. And I, I feel so much more free. And I just want to thank you. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Want more Directionally Challenged in your life? The Directionally Challenged podcast is now on Patreon. Sign up on Patreon today to unlock exclusive bonus episodes where we take everything we've learned on this podcast and dish it back to you, answering your questions and giving you our advice. Thank you, DC Patreon members, Samantha Flowers, Heidi Hill, and Sean Williams for already submitting your awesome questions. We can't wait to answer them for you in next week's bonus episode. By joining and supporting our Patreon, you'll also be supporting this all-female-run podcast. It's so easy. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash directionallychallenged. Again, that's patreon.com slash directionallychallenged. See you there. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com It's time to get more in 2024. I know for me, one of my goals is to feel really strong this year. And honestly, so far, so good. Because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now, I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae, and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix. My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGED right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly. Let's go back for a second. I want to insert a question um, about how you act, the the actual logistics of starting uh, an organization while incarcerated. So take us you have the idea to start success stories. And then what? Because an idea is just an idea until you actually are proactive and do something about it. It seems very difficult to be incarcerated and start an organization. What's the first step to doing that? Take us through that. Um, well, Prison regulations are very localized, so I know how it works in California pretty intimately. Um, but essentially, um, I spent my first year in the LA County Jail where there was, there were no programs, um, and then I was in high security prison where there are no programs, and then I got to a medium security prison where there were programs. But uh, my experience of at least the ones I went to is they were like reinforcing patriarchy as opposed to challenging it. Their narrative was like, you went to jail because you weren't patriarchal enough in like the traditional American sense of like, go get a real job and get you one woman and run the finances of your house and whatever. Um, so I was like, this, this ain't it. Like, this conversation is not offering the freedom that I feel like I have been offered through, through the feminist conversations um, that I was blessed enough to be a part of. 
Um, so I put together a workshop at first and I asked that program that I was in if I could deliver the workshop to the participants. And eventually they were like, fine. Um, and the programs are ran by incarcerated people with like a staff sponsor um, who's kind of the interface between the programs and like the official like prison apparatus. So the, the folks who were running the program had been in prison longer than I had been alive. At the time I was 21 and, and they, they were in prison 27 years, 28 years. Um, so they didn't take me super seriously, but they were like, sure, go for it. And, uh, you know, I was supposed to have a 45 minute slot. They gave me a 20 minute slot. They were like laughing and, oh, Richie's going to come up here and talk about patriotically or something. I don't know. Go ahead, Richie. <laughs> um, so anyway, I go up there and I tried to, to I try to do it. And I, I designed this little workshop based off a book by Bell Hooks called We Real Cool. And it went terrible. Um, and, uh, you know, I got laughed out the room, like I told you. And I, and I went to my friend um, who was also 21. And I said, yo, we got to start our own group. Um, and, and that's what we did. We, we just, we read the regulations. Uh, the, there's like a book of regulations for the prison on how to do it. Um, we started unofficial at first. Um, and then it took us about a year and a half to become official. Uh, there's a lot of kind of politics that go into self-help programs. Oftentimes staff use them for their own gain. Like if you're the staff sponsor or of a really, or at least at the time of like a, pretty popular prison program that's maybe been in the press a couple times and you look like you really are about whatever serving the people then you know that can help folks get raises and so there was all kinds of politics happening amongst staff that almost landed me in the hole they wanted to send me to the hole for starting success stories because they were saying I was manipulating staff as we were trying to find a staff sponsor to support our program um, but that's because of whatever the staff were going through uh, amongst each other um, so it was a it was a process. There was there was uh, animosity from staff, which just generally there's always animosity from staff when you're in prison. But there was like extra animosity based on what we were doing. Um, there was uh, animosity from other incarcerated people who you know are what often happens with oppressed peoples. We're fighting for crumbs, and for us to be starting a program. That took time, resources, attention, press away from other programs that folks might have been using as like their their plan to get out of prison, or you know. Right. So there's 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 just a lot of dynamics that made it very difficult. Um, yeah, there are a lot of dynamics that made it very difficult, but we we got it done. It took about a year and a half to become official, um, and then once I got out, we started applying for funding and for clearances and. That's how we spread. And you also started um, Initiate Justice while you were incarcerated as well. And correct? I, yeah, I co-founded Initiate Justice with Taina. Yes, yes. And a huge part of that was specifically Prop 57, which would go on to change the course of your life. Could you talk to us a little bit about um, Initiate Justice, starting that while incarcerated and the work that you did for Prop 57? We, you know, we were doing success stories first and obviously we were very aware that the prison system was designed to keep people in prison for as long as possible, uh, really for the political gain um, and capitalization of law enforcement and private companies um, and politicians. So we were like, it doesn't make sense for us to be doing all this work on our own lives and then we're just still in prison. Um, folks should be able to earn time off for doing this work. 
So I told Taina Vargas Edmond about it and her background is in state policy. And she was like, you should write a bill. Um, and, you know, obviously Charles and I, Charles, the co-founder of Success Stories, we had never written a bill before, but we went to the prison law library and we did some research and um, we sent it over to Taina and she put it in bill format and she got it introduced. Um, and the governor of California reached out to our author, the assembly member who authored the bill and said, I can do this stronger with a ballot initiative. Um, and he did. He added some of that language to a ballot initiative that uh, was called the Public Safety and Rehabilitation Act of 2016. Um, it was already doing a bunch of great things uh, to stop kids from being charged as adults. But he added that language to it. And we, you know, you can stand in front of Target and try to collect signatures for a thing. Um, but for something like this, you want to talk to the people who are actually directly impacted by it. So Taina and I started collecting signatures in the visiting room and she would go collect signatures in the prison parking lot from other visitors as they were leaving. Um, and then I started organizing people inside because many times, you know, poor folks uh, and poor and working class people of color in particular who are in prison, our families don't vote like. And so we did a whole voter registration push and like a get out the vote push from prison where we were able to get like a, a info sheet on Prop 57 and voter registration guides to every single person who was incarcerated at that prison, over 2000 people for them to send home. Um, and that really became the beginning of Initiate Justice. I mean, hundreds of organizations worked on Prop 57. It passed. And because of it passed and because of that piece where you can earn time from your sentence for participating in rehabilitative programs, I was able to come home two years early. Um, and I came home in 2018 instead of 2020. Wow. A much deserved sentencing take, or I don't even know what you would call it, but I'm so happy that you're able to have, have been home two years early. Um, you also are working on getting the vote for Proposition 17, right? Yeah. It's on the ballot here in California this November. Um, can you talk to us about that? Because this is something we can all actively partake in. Yes. Thank you, Kayla, for bringing that up. So Initiate Justice also um, is the authors and creators of what is now Prop 17. Um, and I'd love to just tell you all the story of how it came about because yes. it was... So Initiate Justice's structure is we have members and organizers on the inside and we have members and organizers on the outside. Um Back in 2017, I was still in Soledad. I had a team of inside organizers there. There was another team in San Quentin that was led by Rasan Thomas, um, the journalist who's incarcerated in San Quentin and has been for over 20 years. Um, and we all submitted our ideas to the greater team on what we should work on. And uh, Rasan's team won. And Rasan and them's idea was to do a bill to give voting rights back to people in prison and on parole. Um, and that's, that's what the team voted on, the, the greater team that included our inside and outside folks. Um, and that's what we pushed. And we tried that for, for the 2018 ballot, completely grassroots, no funding with only volunteers. We got over 25,000 signatures, which was a success given, you know, we we're a bunch of people in prison and, and people in, with incarcerated loved ones with like no official backing whatsoever. But we needed 500,000 signatures, so it wasn't quite what we needed. <laughs> um, but the amazing thing is, in the following year, uh, Assemblymember McCarty 
um, from California up in Sacramento reached out to Taina, who, who runs Initiate Justice, and said, hey, like we, we believe in what you all tried to do with the VRDA. Um, it was the Voting Rights and Democracy Act. Um, and, and we're going we're gonna to help you do it this time. Um, so with some official backing, um, Initiate Justice and a whole coalition that Initiate Justice created called Free the Vote Cup Coalition uh, pushed it through the legislature to get it on the ballot. Um, it took two years and now it's going to be on the 2020 ballot and it's called Prop 17. And if it passes, people on parole, uh, meaning people who get out of state prison, will have the right to vote again. Because there are people on parole for years and some people even have lifetime on parole who would otherwise not be able to vote, who are out in the world, who are working, taxpaying citizens without the right to vote. And that is crazy that I, my brain can't really wrap <laughs> around that that's a fact. This is even wilder than that, Candace. is that if you get out of federal prison and you're on what's called federal probation, which is the same as parole, you get out of federal prison in California, you can vote. If you get out of county jail and you're on county probation, you can vote. But if you get out of state prison and you're on state parole, you cannot vote. Right now. So anyone listening, if you live in California, Prop 17, do not forget about this. Yes, on 17 this November. There you go. Well, what kind of, I mean, in moving forward, what kind of prison reform do you want to see? That is something that finally people are talking about um, more at length. And what kind of prison reform do you want to see moving forward? Yeah, I would say, um, so I'm an abolitionist and I'm actually not interested in in prison reform. I'm interested in prison abolition. Um, And for folks who maybe have never heard that before, uh, what it is, is it's the idea of defining justice um, as healing instead of justice as revenge. So it's a complete reframe of, around the way that we deal with harm. Um, and I say harm instead of crime because not all harmful things are illegal and not all uh, illegal things are harmful. Um, but all harm, every time a human being is hurt by another human being, we should deal with that. So what prison abolition looks like is it's getting away from the punishment system, from the state-sanctioned revenge system. Some people hear prison abolition and they think we mean a world without uh, accountability or consequences. But actually, right now we have a world without accountability and consequences because punishment is not the same as accountability. Punishment actually makes accountability very difficult. Accountability is when somebody understands the harm that they did, so much so that they're committed to never doing it again and that they want to transform the systems that led to that in the first place. The art, punishing someone, acting revenge on somebody actually doesn't bring about accountability. Um, I'll use myself as an example. I didn't even think about the people who I robbed. Because yes, I robbed stores, but I robbed people, right? Like there's people in front of those registers. They didn't even cross my mind for two years. Because in LA County Jail, within, within 20 minutes of getting into LA County Jail, I watched the sheriff stomp on somebody to the point where they broke their leg. Um, so that's what I was worried about while I was in prison, right? Within three weeks of getting to state prison from the LA County jail, I seen somebody get stabbed and I seen police fire live ammunition into a closed building, right? From a gun tower. So I was worried about not getting killed either by law enforcement or by other incarcerated people, right? I wasn't thinking about the people who I robbed. It wasn't until I got to a medium security prison, 
had started success stories, had kind of been able to breathe a little bit, that I even crossed my mind the harm that I had done to others. I was actually reading my court transcripts and I read about one of the security guards who I held at gunpoint during the first robbery um, and that he was, he was an immigrant um, from West Africa and he actually quit his job after that, after that robbery, which possibly could have put his, his immigration status at risk. I don't know, but I read about his children. I read about the fact he, he, was, he told the police in his statement that he was afraid to leave his house after it happened. And I just started crying. I, I, I actually had to reconcile with what I did to another person. And that is what led me to actually want to change my behavior. Um, that's actually accountability. Not saying that I don't have more work to do or I can't even be more accountable. I'm open to that. But I'm saying the moment of accountability comes through human connection. It actually doesn't come through human isolation. So those of us who are abolitionists, we also believe in transformative justice, which is the very hard work of holding someone accountable, which means putting someone in the position where they have to reconcile with the actual human beings they've harmed. And that's not done in our system. Our system right now pretty much makes up random numbers of time of how much you should be in prison based on something you did. And then they use the victims and survivors as tools or quote unquote evidence to then send people for as long as possible to prison. And then you, the fact that you're in prison as ways to benefit either politically or through money. And that's what we're looking to abolish. So how, when you say looking to abolish, how? I mean, that seems like such a um, huge monumental goal that I definitely, after what you've done, think that you are, you can get it done. But it's so, when it's, when the goal is so huge, what is the first step towards taking it? Yeah, well, the, the, it's many things. It's kind of a shuffle um, because we need to be on one hand uh, dismantling the harmful system we have and on the other hand, building up one that actually uh, suits our needs and solves our problems. Um, but that's what the defund the police movement is about. It's about taking the first step of, you know, from the 80s to now, we have had a complete slash and obliteration of all social fabric in this country and all that money has been instead invested into the punishment state and the, and the punishment system. So defund the police is all about taking those resources back because they, didn't, they weren't always there, taking those resources back from the punishment system, namely the police who are the, the first stage in the punishment system and putting it into communities so people have what they need to uh, thrive and survive. And then in, for transformative justice, what, what does that look like to you? Like, what would you like that to look like yeah um thank you and, and i appreciate the framing of it what it looks like to me because there's so many different ways it can look because we i think people want a catch-all because right now we have a catch-all it's not a catch-all that actually solves any problems um but prison is a catch-all right you, you sell drugs you go to prison you you hurt somebody violently you go to prison it's all it's one thing and i think people it's easy to be like we just need a new one thing but it's actually not one thing because mm -hmm. um Different situations of harm need different uh, solutions and interventions. But generally, generally speaking, what uh, transformative justice aims to do is to, one, end immediate harm. So put whoever is being harmed in the moment in, back into a position of safety. Um, two, hold the, the, the harm doer accountable. So that means put them in a position where they can actually be aware of what it is they did. Um, and three, transform their behavior. Uh, I would actually say, and an, a fourth, 
which is transform the systems that led to that behavior. Um, so to make it more concrete, I, I can give some examples. Um, we, I was literally just doing a training like two weeks ago with the success stories team. Cause we, we do see ourselves as a transformative justice organization and we don't do, there, there's different parts of transformative justice. We do behavior transformation work, which is a really important part of it, right? Like when you have somebody who is doing violent things, they're like in violent, unhealthy habits. There has to be somebody to actually work with them to transform that behavior. And all of us success stories are formerly incarcerated. We've all been in those habits and, and have done the work and can now help other people get out of those habits. So that's what we do. But what happens before we can even come in is whoever is being harmed by this person needs to be put in a position of safety. So I'm, I'm talking to one of the coaches and he was talking about a friend of his who was uh, being pursued by uh, someone who she was in an intimate relationship with who was abusive, physically and sexually abusive. And he was like pounding on her door trying to get in and she didn't know what to do but to call the cops. And he was like, Richie, what should we tell people? Like, who do you mm. call? And if not the police, who do you call? And I said, literally everyone else. <laughs> Every single person in your phone, if you were under attack right now, every single person in your phone would show up. If if I get a call right now that someone's banging on their door trying to assault them, I'm sorry, y'all, I got to go. Like, I would yeah. leave it and go, you know? And what has been shown is that it actually doesn't take armed, random people <laughs> with guns to show up. Um, it just takes a lot of people to show up. So when, when 8, 10, 12, 20 people are now, who, who all know this person and love this person are, are now around, um, it puts us in the position where there's less risk of acute violence and situations can be, um, I can't think of the word right now. Situations can be de-escalated. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and that's step one of first like de-escalating a situation of immediate harm. Then we have to get into the parts about accountability, which can look like uh, the truth and reconciliation courts that we've seen through after major conflicts on the African continent where what are you going to do after the Rwandan genocide? Arrest every single human being? No, of course not. So what they did instead was they had truth and reconciliation courts where the, the doer of harm would sit and listen to every single person that they harmed and those people's families and those people's uh, relatives, like really understand the impact of their harm and then make some kind of commitment to that family, to that community of how they're going to serve them. Not only transform, change their behavior, but serve that community. Um, the same thing was done in South Africa after apartheid. Um, these are transform. That's why we call it transformative justice. These are transformative processes. Um, now it doesn't scratch that itch that we've been raised to have of like, well, you did something wrong. Now I need to do something bad to you. Instead, it takes what started out as a very bad situation and creates something completely new, which could actually be a situation in which everybody is, uh, better off potentially. And then there's a the step of transforming behavior as well, which is what success stories does. Right. Now, I'm sure for and I can imagine maybe there's someone listening who would say, okay, but then there are people who do really, 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 really bad things. And mm -hmm. to make that as like a blanket thing, you know, if someone's going to be like, well, then what about the serial killers that I watch on my Netflix shows? You know, what about those people? I'm sure, does this come up a lot? Where maybe yes. then the counter of that? They come up all the they come up all the time, Candace. Those are the main <laughs> questions, which actually show how um, 
misled we are about the the mythology of um of of justice and harm because in actuality like people think of prisons as being full of like serial killers and serial rapists um but in fact they're they are a very 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 tiny percentage of the people who are incarcerated right most of the people who are in prison are people like me um and and actually i was very privileged compared to most people in prison. Most people in prison had it a whole lot rougher than I did, right? I, I dropped out of school with a 3.5. <laughs> most people in prison, unfortunately, didn't um, have the opportunity to do that. But anyway, what I'm saying is that, one, right now today, people who commit rape are incarcerated for it less than 1% of the time. So when people say, what about the rapists and murderers? I say, which ones? The ones in the White House? The ones running Hollywood? The ones, which rapists and murderers are we talking about? Because they're actually here. People who commit rape do not go to jail right now. Yeah. Um, they're, they're walking around college campuses. They're running corporations. And, most, and people are, are silent about it, right? Um, so prison isn't solving the problem of sexual violence, one. Um, and serial killers or, or people with uh, sociopathy are a tiny, tiny percent of the people who are in prison. Um, I just feel like it's important to point that out too. Actually, a, a very interesting statistics is that there are more murders on TV every day than there are in real life because of the way we've obsessively created media around really gross violence. So people watch Criminal Minds and Law and Order and they think this is what's happening out there. No, it's not. Actually, uh, if your average cop, an American cop makes more than two felony arrests a year, um, they're considered like a, a hero because that actually doesn't happen very often. The world is just not this super dangerous place that, that we think it is. Um, but with all that being said, there are people who commit grave, serious violence. And as an abolitionist, what I'm advocating for is that we do not seek to punish them, but we rather seek to transform them. That doesn't mean that they don't have to be separated. Some folks might be suffering from serious mental illness like sociopathy, which leads them to just hurt people as a thing. Um, when I say some folks, I mean maybe 20 people in the entire country, but still, um, maybe 200, I don't know, very small amount of people. But I'm not saying, you know, we just keep going through, they go through success stories over and over and they just continue to kill people and well, chunk it up to the, it's fine because I'm an abolitionist. I'm saying we get away from the idea that I need to hurt you back. So even if I have to separate you while you're getting mental health treatment, because that's what you need, you have a mental health issue. Um, even if you have to be separated, it's for the sake of safety as opposed to for the sake of revenge. And that looks very, very, very different. I also really want to um, talk about Question Culture, which is a company that you have that you also started again while in prison. Correct. I mean, you were just so busy accomplishing all these amazing things. Um, and you guys released a new album that's teaming up with Justice LA, schools, not prisons, and Reform LA jail jails to produce Defund the Sheriff, right? That's the name of the album. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk to us about that and how we can support it? Yes, Defund the Sheriff. So, and, and Question Culture. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, question Culture is, you know, before I started organizing or having any of these life experiences, I was a music producer. I, I started making beats when I was 14. Um, and very quickly, I also got organized and politicized when I was 14. I realized like there is a disconnect between like my, my homies who are in the streets and then my friends who are in the movement and doing social justice work. 
I was like, why aren't the homies in the streets pulling up to the protest? Like this is literally about them. They're some of the most marginalized people in society. Um, and I realized that a way to build that bridge was through culture. Like folks in, in the streets share the same culture, listen to the same music, watch the same movies, eat the same food, smoke the same weed as people in the movement. And I wanted to, to really use uh, music, film, fashion, the things that I loved so much um, for the movement in that way. So in 2015, um, I wrote, produced, recorded, released an album from prison. Um, don't look it up. It's not super good, but I'm <laughs> proud of myself for doing it. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> that was the launch of, um, of Question Culture. And we, you know, hip hop is the biggest cultural force on earth and uh, patriarchy and, and the institutionalization of patriarchy and, and prisons um, is the biggest problem on earth. Um, so we try to use, you know, hip hop to end patriarchy and not in a way that's like corny. I would never actually say that on a song, but rather in ways that feel authentic and dope and creative. And, uh, so we did this album, Defund the Sheriff with, uh, Justice LA, Reform LA Jails, um, school not, Schools Not Prisons, um, to support the Defund the Sheriff campaign, which is happening in LA. Cause every, every question culture project, um, is attached to an action campaign. So like not only does the art challenge narratives, but we want to use the art to like push forward real campaigns. So uh, Justice LA, which are the homies, they're fighting to end mass incarceration in Los Angeles and winning, um, reached out to us and we're like, hey, uh, we want to bring attention to all the different defund the sheriff campaigns that are happening. What about doing an album? And we were able to reach out to a bunch of dope artists, uh, right. big men, Lauren Yadaguay, Aloe Black, Madam Gandhi. Um, hella other people as well as our own artist Indigo Mateo who signed a question culture and 88 who's currently incarcerated and also signed a question culture um, and and put out this album and you know bring national attention to the largest jail system on earth and the most murderous sheriff's department on earth which is right here in LA County. How can we and our listeners download it to help support it? It's on everything. If you just put defund the sheriff in whatever you have, Apple Music, Spotify, it's right there. Okay, awesome. I'm excited. I have my new playlist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to hear it. Tell me. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've been really excited to sit down with you. Um, where can our listeners find you on social media? Obviously, they can... Um, search Initiate Justice to learn more about that organization and success stories as well. But where can they find you personally to to just follow you in your journey? Yeah, all my my socials are my name, Richie Reseda. Um, Richie, like you think it's spelled Reseda, R-E-S-E-D-A, like the neighborhood in LA. And uh, yeah, that's my Instagram. That's my Twitter. And then you can link to Question Culture and, and IJ and success stories that I have them in all my bios. Perfect. And we'll also have those in our podcast links for this episode. Um, Richie, this has been such a wonderful conversation and we are honored and proud to have had it with you truly. So thank you for joining us. Thank you all so much for having me. This has been amazing. And uh, well, yes, I'm Pop 17. It's hard to find the words after a conversation like that. It's the, I, I mean, a lot of, I had so many questions we could have talked for hours with Richie mm. and um, 
I'm so appreciative that he was able to uh, be so vulnerable and also so informative with his answers because I could have asked a million more questions. <laughs> right. And I'm just so impressed with how much he's accomplished in his life already at yet such a young age. I know that we have so much to see from him in the future, too. So to be able to have had this conversation at this point in his life is um really exciting. And I'm just going to follow him and excited to see what he does um, in the future. I also know we have our new summer playlist, hashtag defund the sheriff, his new album. Yes. And we know exactly what we're how we're voting on Prop 17 come November of this year in California. That yes, right. on Prop 17. And yes, on Richie Reseda. Richie, thank you so much again for joining us. We hope that you guys enjoyed this episode of Directionally Challenged and we'll have an all new episode waiting for you guys next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 